Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everyone left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with bereavement professionals. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Janet Christofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Imagine a teenager who stops playing their beloved soccer, starts answering to questions with just one-word responses, and refuses to help out around the house. This is a teen who also experienced a death in the past few months, leaving their caregiver wondering, is this grief or is this just normal teen behavior? Then, imagine a second grader, and the second grader starts having some really big behaviors. Maybe he's refusing to leave for school in the morning or starts yelling and crying whenever it's time to get ready for bed. He's also grieving the death of his mother, and now his mother is a solo parent, trying to figure out how to cope with the death of her wife while also raising their son. These are just a few of the everyday challenges that parents and caregivers of grieving children and teens experience. Daily, they face the dilemma of how to parent and set limits in a way that supports the grief that their children are going through. So since we run peer support groups at the Dougie Center and don't do counseling or therapy, I decided to reach out for some help for how we can sort through this big concept of how to parent while also grieving. And thankfully, I found Dr. Kitty Huffstetter. Hi, Kitty. Hello. Thanks for being a guest today on the podcast. No problem. I'm happy to be here. And Kitty, I didn't want to introduce you, so can you tell us a little, like, what's your story? Why do you know the answer to these questions? Well, I'm a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Oregon, and I have been working with children and families. My primary focus of my career has been on children's mental health. Um, I actually started my career in residential treatment and have worked with kids and families in different types of environments and different ways for almost 18 years now, I think. Currently, I am a clinical manager with Morrison Child and Family Services, and I have been with them for about six years, and I provide now supervision and a lot of training for therapists who are working with kids like those you described in your introduction. Well, I'm really excited to kind of dive into this topic and get some really tangible, possibly suggestions for listeners out there who are parenting and caregiving for kids who are having some of these big behaviors. Absolutely. I can imagine. Um, Also, I think part of it is how probably challenging it is for them when they're experiencing their own grief to be able to, to hold and support their kids who are struggling as well. You know, as I was getting ready for our conversation, Kitty, I was thinking about how there's parenting that happens in the microcosm. So that might be like how to set clear limits and expectations on behaviors, how to navigate those daily routines, and how to respond to some big emotions. And doing all of that, you know, as you mentioned, as a solo parent, now maybe after the death of another parent or caregiver, or maybe as a parent who's grieving the death of their own child. What are some ways that you help parents and caregivers figure out how to set those limits and clear expectations? When a child is dealing with a significant disruption in their lives, like a death or an illness of someone in their family. Exactly. Um, That's a really good question. I think that's kind of part of my daily life right now in many ways in terms of the kinds of families that I'm working with and supporting therapists and working with. The place that I like to start is, you know, as a parent myself of a, a young child, My mom passed away actually a few years ago, so I did have to kind of go through that process in a different way. But thinking about what that experience was like for me and really 
coming at them as a human. And I think, like we say to many parents or to to ourselves as caregivers um, working in the social work field, is that we're not going to be able to be present and provide support unless we really look at ourselves first. And so the place I like to start is really by providing empathy and compassion for the parent themselves and really understanding what was their life like before the incident or before the death happened? Um, how do things look different now? Because that really helps me to be able to determine, is this a behavior that is more of like an adjustment issue or is this a more ongoing concern where they might actually need to get therapy services and a little bit more support um, other than the typical like your family and natural supports in your environment that can provide um, help and support to you? So one of the things I like to find out about is, who are your support people in your life? Who can you rely on to help you if you are feeling so upset? Because kids are looking at their parents and caregivers to kind of gauge how their own stability is. And if their parent and caregiver is very anxious, very upset, depressed, perhaps themselves, or trying to attend to a crisis situation like setting up funeral arrangements or things like that memorial services or dealing with financial stress, which often happens after someone in our family um, that's significant to us passes away, the kids are going to be picking up on that. They need their parents to be predictable and stable caregivers in order to maintain their own emotional regulation. And so that's why I like to really start with the caregiver themselves, find out who are their support people, and to approach them from a place of humanness and, and genuineness and in a caring and but also somebody who can see from a kind of bigger picture and help them kind of sort through those details. It's such a great point is often parents and caregivers are so focused immediately on the kids. How do I help my kid? How do I help my teen? How do I make it okay for them? And it sounds like from what you're saying that pausing and doing that self-assessment, who are my supports? What do I need? Where do I need to shore things up for me so that I can be present to be helping my kid or my teen? Absolutely. I think it is critical. I also think it's important to provide a lot of what we call in our field psychoeducation, which is basically just giving information to people about how trauma affects us physically, how it affects our social life and things like that, because a lot of people don't know. And part of us getting a grip on <laughs> our own uh, reactions to things is being able to take a pulse on our own bodies and understanding like when I'm stressed, my throat starts to close up. When I'm feeling really emotional, I don't feel well or I'm grumpy or I'm irritable or, you know, my stomach hurts or I clench my jaw. I'm not getting enough sleep at night. Some of the basic things that we do for self-care, we forget when we're in times of stress. And so I think it's also important to provide the education about those pieces for parents. And that also helps them to be reflective about noticing those kinds of things in their children. So what is it like, again, what was life? What did that look like before? And how is it different now? And kind of establishing are these things that are unique that have cropped up since the death in the family has happened? Or are these things that have been ongoing and they're intensified and things like that? It goes back to the idea around, you know, imagining like a child has a parent die maybe in their 10 and then they hit 12, 13. And we have that question of, and what I see, is this grief or is this typical adolescent behavior? How do you respond to that for folks? That's a really good question. Again, I think what I go back to is doing a really thorough assessment. I think parents and caregivers can be very good sources of information about, tell me about this person's early childhood experience. Tell me about their temperament. Tell me about, did they have any 
physical things happen to them that may have affected how they're functioning. Tell me about their development. Do they have any cognitive delays? Do they have developmental issues or had they had those in the past? Um, I think all of those factors play into how a teen experiences their adolescent developmental stage. And so I think it's important to understand those pieces, especially if you're trying to tease out, is this a typical teen response or is this maybe delayed response to their death experience that didn't come up because they're in a different developmental stage of their life and they have a different understanding of what happened to them? So again, those are really kind of complicated things to tease out, but I think parents actually know a lot more than they give themselves credit for in these situations. And oftentimes it's just having an outside person to walk through those questions with them and help them think about it and say, you know, from my perspective, working with many teens, here's what I would see are typical developmental tasks and stages in adolescence. Um, And as we know, kids who've experienced trauma, their brains can have some developmental trauma from that experience as well. And so it might manifest differently when they're a teen and their brain is going through different developmental tasks. Um, And so helping people to understand that and sort of teasing those things out, you know, what are their observations? What are the observations of people in the school environment can be very helpful because they have a different kind of context at school and multiple people have eyes on them that have different perspectives, maybe different understandings of the child in different environment versus especially if there's tension in the parent-child relationship because that could be influencing how the child presents at home that might not be present Mm -hmm. in the school environment or vice versa really teasing out like is this a distinct you know indifferent issue that's related to development or related to grief I think you would need to have an understanding of how the child really presents and functions in the different environments how might that play out for a parent or a caregiver just in like day-to-day life with that teen. So you have a teen who has grief and possibly has some developmental changes because of that experience of grief, and this teenager is refusing to help load the dishwasher. Like, what would you, how would you work with a family around that? Yeah, I think what often happens is people do come in because kids are having behavioral challenges that are really extreme in some cases, and they're not seen behind the child's behavior they're focusing on the surface problem, which is really a symptom sometimes of a larger issue like grief, having experienced a traumatic you know, experience, especially if they've had other um, losses or traumas in their life, that's going to get compounded with anything new. And so where I would start with them is to try to, again, provide psychoeducation about trauma and how it impacts the brain and child development. Um, not that that's the whole story, but often... I do that because I want to set the stage for people to understand the concept of recovery environment. Some of it is like if a child is really struggling with trauma, thinking about or if they have developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities or things that are going to make it harder for them to function in their day-to-day life, how can we structure their environment in a way that's more realistic? I'm often telling parents in, you know, with kids in mental health services that Your child is not developing typically, and so the way you were parented or the way you might have parented your other children who have developed typically is not going to work for this kid. Or maybe their temperament is different than their other child is. Maybe the child has more of a tendency towards anger, which may or may not be a mental health concern, but there needs to be adaptability sometimes in the way we parent. And so the concept of recovery environment really helps us to tease that out and understand, like, I wonder if you just... If you notice um, the child wakes up and they're really irritable 
and then they're, they're refusing to unload the dishwasher. Can we just problem solve that and find a different time to do that? So some of it is like reducing the overall like anxiety and tension in the relationships in the home and then and then trying to foster more of a connection, finding out what are the coping skills of this family? What is the coping skills of the parent? What's the coping skills of the child? Just building their connection a little bit more, finding things that they enjoy, especially with teens. Often there's so much tension and frustration in the relationship, even with typically developing teens, that people stop enjoy spending time together. And so if you can kind of reduce the overall level of attention in the relationship, I think then what you begin to see is people actually relaxing a little bit and enjoying, and then the kid might, that would be a pathway for them to open up a little bit about what they're struggling with. And sometimes it is helpful to have an outside person, a therapist or a school counselor or, you know, a pastor or someone in their community who isn't involved in the relational struggle, who has that outside perspective that they both trust and can help facilitate them having more dialogue around what the conflict is, even problem solving little things like dishes. But usually I see those as a symptom of a larger kind of underlying issue, whether that's someone is has a mental health problem or they're experiencing trauma memories and they're not sleeping well, whatever that is. Yeah, and in the in the situation of grief, families can have that additional tension because they're grieving in different ways or mm-hmm. their relationship is a reminder in some way of who isn't there anymore in the <laughs> family. And so there are going to be so many layers that add to that disconnect. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like what you're saying is really helpful for families to find a way to rebuild a human connection with one another so that the negotiations around the behavior maybe get a little bit more peaceful or available. And what I find sometimes too is that those little conflicts that happen like not taking out the dishes or not falling through with chores, those are actually easier for people to focus on than some of the bigger, like larger feelings around, I'm really afraid I'm going to lose you because I lost my other parent or I lost my grandma or whatever, the, or I lost my brother or sister, or I'm so angry at you and I'm projecting all this anger on you because I miss my partner and they're not here to help me, those kinds of things. And I think your point about grieving styles is very well taken because sometimes a parent and child have different grieving styles and the parent will come in and say, there's something wrong with my child. They're not crying about this and they're not upset about this. And I was like, well, wait a minute, let's step back. And let me share with you that actually people grieve differently. And that doesn't mean that there's something wrong. You know, here's what you might look for to see if there was more of a concern. But I think that that sometimes when we're in a crisis situation ourselves and we're like, why doesn't it seem like this is bothering them? It's helpful to have that outside perspective to say, well, have you thought about it this way or have you considered this? And I still think it's it's not that, you know, we're the expert. It's that, that the parents really have a lot more information than we give them credit for. It's just mm-hmm. helping them to see it maybe from a different perspective. And that they give themselves credit for, as you said. Well, what about in the situation around, I'm thinking maybe particularly around younger kids, five, six, seven, eight-year-old, ten-year-old, and there's some really big behaviors that maybe are... Uh, a safety concern mm-hmm. in some way. So kids who start hitting or kicking or just being unsafe in some way. My suggestion for that would be to see that within the context of a traumatized child. And what we know about people when they experience trauma is that when they are triggered, whether there's an actual threat or not, it could be just a perception of a threat, or it could be an internal trigger like feeling hungry that reminds them of something. And their body's already responding 
to those triggers before they're even consciously aware because the part of our brain that's our thinking brain is totally offline (laughs) when we're in that kind of angry state as humans. And so helping parents to see it that way because sometimes language is not going to work and giving kids, if you're escalated and you're responding to an escalated child, it's just going to increase their perception of threat and make it more intense and bigger. So While it doesn't feel like the right response to say, actually, what's going to be helpful is to be calmer and to use calm voice tones and really paying attention to your body language, because really what kids are paying attention to or humans in those moments when they're very stressed and having a trauma response is much more nonverbals. And so moving really slowly, using softer voice tones. What I like to say from um, Dan Siegel's work, who's a famous neuroscience person and does lots of trainings, he talks about connecting with the right brain, which is the part of the brain that's responding when we're experiencing a perception of trauma or a traumatic experience. So if a kid is having big, unsafe behaviors, finding somebody that they will relate to who's not a trigger for them. I'm often talking to school personnel about this. If you're the person in a conflict with that kid, you staying there and giving, you know, directives is not going to be helpful. <laughs> Having another person come in who's calmer themselves, just by nature of our human biology, it's not wrong to have that response when someone's being threatening. <laughs> but it's helpful to have a calm person who's not escalated come in and connect with the child. And then then when they're calm, then you can do the problem solving. Then you can talk about appropriate consequences. Then you can help the child develop the self-awareness. If it's a very young child, they have a hard time finding the words to explain that they haven't, they need emotion coaching and some explaining about like when your tummy gets this really upset, there's butterflies in there and let's take a deep breath and get those out. That's when the skill building and stuff can happen. But a person needs to be in a calm state before they're able to do that. And so I would suggest getting support from a professional person who can work with a child and the parent around getting them in an overall state of more calmness. You talked about how at school, you know, if you have a, a teacher or administrator who's in a power struggle with a kid that can be, and that kid gets real activated, it's super helpful to bring a neutral party in. And then I'm imagining it's <laughs> bedtime and you're now mm-hmm. a solo parent mm-hmm. and it's just you and this kid in yep. the house. Yep. What, what would that parent do? That does happen a lot. Um, and being a parent myself, I have directly experienced that <laughs> fun. Um, and I think, again, that's where I really come at it from compassion and non judgment and trying to stay in a place of creativity with the parent and saying, is there a place where you can go that's separate? You know, if the child is not totally being unsafe, or can you just start to shut down a little bit? instead of interacting with them, like really problem solving those specific situations and really, and and bedtime can be very difficult for kids who've experienced trauma. And so I'm not surprised when people say, I can't get my child to go to sleep and I'm exhausted and it's turning into these huge blowouts. A lot of times I recommend making like a sensory toolkit for the child when they're in the calm space a calm space with a parent and child together. They can make something with some tools in it that can be soothing to the child at bedtime. Soft music, soft light, no electronics, Mm. (laughs) no tablets. That's a whole Um, other battle. Yes, as much as possible. I mean, within reason, I know people are doing the best they can. And so, again, I don't want to come from a place of judgment. And sometimes it doesn't work or something, something different works the next time. And so trying to stay in a place of creativity as much as possible. But you know, if you need to take a break, if you need to take a timeout, that's actually modeling something really good for your child. And I would say, hey, buddy, I can't do this right now. Mommy's really upset. I need to go take a break. I'll be back in five. 
you know, and then go and take some deep breaths or do whatever it is that's going to be helpful to, to calm down and come back to the situation when you're not as escalated. Yeah, so doubly helpful because you get to calm yourself down and then you model to the child, here's what you can do when you get really absolutely activated. And it's okay to do that. There's no shame in that. We all need to take breaks when we're frustrated with things so that we can bring our best self to those circumstances. So we started talking about the more microcosm pieces of the day-to-day dynamics in a family. And, and I'm wondering, too, about the macrocosm, like the dynamics that can happen in the family that get affected by an illness or a death or some other big life disruption. And one of the first ones that comes to mind is you've got, maybe you've got a family that are, they're coming together and they're blending their family. And maybe it's two parents who have each experienced uh, a loss, maybe a death of a parent or a divorce. What are some of the things you're seeing there and how to help kids? I would say that those situations can be very challenging, but they don't have to be. I think some of it is about being really mindful in preparing children for those types of transitions. I think a lot of times parents get stuck and forget to think about what are the things knowing my child and being the the expert on how my child is. What are their struggles? What are their worries and anxieties? Is it important for me to say to them, you know, I love this person and care about them, and I know they're not going to replace your dad or your mom or your grandma or grandpa or whatever that constellation looks like. Because I think that children experience divided loyalties even when, you know, someone has died or, you know, there's divorce. That's obviously a situation. And so, you know, with blended families, if there's other parental involvement that are not living in the in the household, then I think some of it is making sure that there's co-parenting that's happening in a positive way, that the parents are in charge of communication about adult topics. Even if there is conflict, you know, can they use text message or email and and not fight in front of the children, I think is really important. Again, because you want to reduce their overall anxiety. You want to create an environment where the child can bring questions to the caregiver. And if they're afraid they're betraying someone who isn't there, they're not going to be inclined to do that. And so oftentimes when I'm working with children in those types of situations, I will express what my hypothesis is that the child might be experiencing in the context of a well-developed therapeutic relationship because they're so worried about upsetting their parents. Kids are so afraid of upsetting their parents. Um, They have so much anxiety and hypervigilance around Am I going to say the wrong thing? Am I going to accept them, you know, upset them? Am I going to get in trouble? That I think if you can create the environment where they feel like they can share whatever feelings they have, that's ideal. And anytime there are transitions, those feelings of loss and discomfort and anxiety are going to come up somehow. It may present in different ways. But I think, again, what you want to do is lay the foundation for the children to be able to communicate with the adults and caregivers in their lives it makes me go back to that idea of that self-care for the caregiver. So if you're sitting with your child and you're creating an environment where they can express openly and maybe they say some things that are really hard for you to hear, okay, what's my self-care plan so that I can stay present and, and make that an environment that is conducive to kids sharing openly? And I think sometimes it's offering that support to the parent of like, how about, you know, we do this a few times together, we practice together. And because many times they have big emotions, too, that come up for them, like you said, in those conversations, and they can become tearful. And I'm not saying it's wrong to be emotional in those conversations. I think what's important to let the child know is, 
yeah, mommy's crying and mommy's upset right now, but I'm, I'm going to be okay. We've gotten through this together and things are going to be okay. We're just transitioning right now. And so we're going to have some things we need to work out that are different than they looked before. And, but mommy still loves you so much and nothing about that is going to change. Again, predictability, consistency, unconditional positive regard. Those are kind of the pathways of a well-regulated system. How about the situation of foster family when they've got a kiddo? they're caring for and they get news that that child's bio family member has been diagnosed with an illness or has, has died? That is a is a difficult question, a sad situation for sure. Again, some of it, it would depend on the circumstances. Did the child have a relationship with that person or did they not? I mean, sometimes when children are in foster care, they've never had a relationship with a bio parent who passed away or became diagnosed with an illness. And so again, I think it's stepping back for a minute and thinking about what are the circumstances in the kid's life right now? How stable are they? How much information do they need to know? You know, there's different ways to communicate with kids depending on their age and their maturity. And I'm often stepping back and trying to stay out of panic mode and saying, hey, let's talk about all these different things that might be, that might influence how the child receives this information And who are the supports and people in their life that we can engage with right now that can help them process whatever emotions come up for them, whether that's a professional person or natural supports in their life. I know that's not very specific, but I think it's kind of a unique situation and kind of depends on a lot of different factors. And so I think the main thing I would want to encourage parents or foster parents or other caregivers involved in kids' lives is to really think about What's going to be helpful for them to know? How are they functioning right now? And not to think about it like, well, we have to keep a secret from them. But remember that it's not an all or nothing thing. There's bits of information that might be helpful for them. I wondered too about if it's a child that's not able to be involved in any of the mourning aspects. So say a bio parent dies and this child is not able to attend the memorial service or not able to have contact with the other biological family members if there are other folks, helping the foster family to create opportunities for that Mm -hmm. child to do a ritual or to do some sort of service. Absolutely. And I have to say that I would be a strong advocate for allowing the child with a safe and healthy person with them if their bio family is not unsafe to be able to participate in those services. For the very reason that you just said, I think it is important for them to have some sort of ritual and enclosure and to understand how we as humans in our culture, whatever the culture is, process grief and to provide healthy outlets and a sense of community. Even if the child is, you know, removed from the family, they still have connections with those family members and maybe 10 years later are going to see them or, you know, 20 years later. I've seen all sorts of different scenarios happen. And so I'm not an advocate for cutoffs. I think sometimes cutoffs are necessary, but I, I would probably try to find a creative way to make it somehow, even if it's just the things that you suggested, like maybe them writing a letter to the person who's passed away if they can't attend the memorial service and having the foster parents give it to the caseworker so the caseworker can give it to the family members or lighting a candle for that person or thinking about what are the rituals and practices in the culture of the family and how can they integrate some of that with the child so that they have a way to understand how to process grief. One of the things we hear a lot about, so you've got a parent or a primary caregiver and their partner dies, and now they've got in-laws 
and extended family who are still involved. And oftentimes those in-laws or extended family have some pretty strong ideas about what parenting should look like. <laughs> and they've got the solo parent who's possibly feeling overwhelmed or maybe compromised in their parenting. Navigating that and, and the confusion for a kiddo maybe who is spending significant amount of time with that extended family or those in-laws, like the grandparents of their parent who died. And, like, navigating the different parenting styles. Absolutely. That does happen a lot. And I think, again, it's sort of like stepping back for a second. I would want to work with the parent and help to coach and and guide them in thinking through what they want that to look like. So often in situations when there's been a loss or a traumatic situation and the family's in crisis and these arrangements get sort of cobbled together because they need it to be cobbled together, People don't then go back when they can and take the time to really think through Mm. and explain to the child or maybe even talk with a parent about how to talk to their child about it that or to talk to their other family members about, you know, our roles in our family have shifted a little bit. And, you know, grandma's going to be kind of more like a mom for you for a little bit, but I'm still your mom and I'm still here. Mommy just needs to take care of herself right now or whatever that looks like. So I'm just trying to give examples of things that I've experienced in my practice that may be useful to people. But I think it can be, again, those kind of transitions can be anxiety-provoking in the family system because they're different and roles change. And so it's just important to be thoughtful or have somebody that can help to think through those things. And and I think, again, it's it's like parenting in the context of separation and divorce. There's different caregivers that maybe have different care- caregiving styles. So what is the communication like between the adults? Because it shouldn't have to filter through the kid and we want to try to keep them stable and have as less anxiety as possible and be able to focus on their own developmental tasks and grieving if that's what they need to do instead of worrying about grandma and mommy are mad at each other because grandma told me I couldn't do that and mommy said I could or like whatever it is. When the family has an opportunity really sitting back and saying, hey, let's connect about this. I am the mom. These are the expectations because we would want to have consistency as much as possible and expectations for the child. Again, predictable, consistent environments or recovery environments for kids and optimal environments for development for typically developing kids too. And so um, I don't want to pathologize all kids who've experienced loss because not everybody experiences pathology. That's sort of my bread and butter. So that's what I'm more familiar with, but it also applies to everyone. And so really helping people with their communication and to think through those situations and talk about creatively, like what makes sense in this situation And sometimes having an outside person tell your parents or the grandparents of your child, like, whoa, actually what we'd really like is to have more communication between you two and less filtering through the child. Or I wonder if there's like a mismatch in your guys' parenting style and that might be confusing for the kid. So how can we set up similar expectations or how can you say, you know, would mom be okay with you doing this or making sure that you have the parents back, the primary caregivers back a little bit because that could be setting them up for lots of blowouts and frustration when the when the roles are changing and there's different expectations. So those are just some initial thoughts and ideas I have about that really challenging situation. Yeah, <laughs> how important it is to have some negotiating happening around, like you mentioned, the consistency and the routine that that child's having in their everyday home. And then they go and stay in a different family member's home and that that communication needs to happen between the adults, not like well, you tell your dad and you tell your grandma. Like That's super confusing for mm-hmm. a kiddo. Yeah. All right. My last one for you today <laughs> is around dating. So many mm-hmm. families, you know, primary caregiver dies. Other primary caregivers maybe starts to date 
and that can be whew, that can be intense for kids <laughs> and for teens. And a lot of the parents we talk to say, "I don't, I don't really know how to like introduce that to my kid. How much, how much power do I give them over that? Any thoughts or suggestions?" Yeah. I would say that, again, from my standpoint, I think preparing the child for that is important. So even though it might be kind of anxiety-provoking for the parent themselves to start thinking about, well, I want to put myself out there a little bit, it's okay to communicate with a child about that, thinking about what is it that they need to know. They're not their friend, right? The reason you would be telling them that is because you would want them to feel safe and comfortable and know that you still love them just as much and that it's not going to change the love that you had for their deceased parent. So some of those, like giving some words and language for the parent to have that conversation depending on the age of the child. I think the parent needs to be in charge, though. I don't think they should give the kid control over the situation because, again, that's too much responsibility for a kid. Adult stuff is adult stuff, and that can be really problematic for kids to be put in that kind of a confidant role. It's too much responsibility, and it can get overwhelming and really stressful for them. I know why that happens, and I'm I'm not judging people for that, but I don't recommend it. I wonder about, like, the idea of choice and how important choice can be for grieving kids. And then in this situation, maybe it's you've had that conversation, you're getting ready to introduce your child to the person you're dating, and maybe the kid gets a choice about whether they meet at their home or they meet out sure. at a restaurant or a park. Absolutely. And so finding ways that kids can have yeah. some involvement, mm-hmm. but not giving them, like you said, the right. responsibility yeah. of, can I date this person? Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense too. And, and uh, again, it's sort of like stepping back and kind of thinking about the big picture and like thinking about how is the child functioning right now? How can I prepare them for the possibility of, you know, me being in a relationship with someone new? But, you know, if you're not in a serious relationship or somebody that you're interested in developing more of a serious relationship, I don't know that your kid would really need to be involved in that, you know? So I would probably suggest waiting until the person had a more significant relationship and somebody they were very interested in and then think about, you know, how am I going to communicate with my child about this and whether or not they want to meet the person and how, what kind of environment they'd like to meet them in. And I would say, yeah, giving them choices would be better than saying, well, what do you think? Because again, it's pretty overwhelming for them. And so saying like, I was thinking we might, you know, go to dinner together in a, in a place that they like to eat in. But probably not a place that was like a special place for their family before, but not their dad's favorite restaurant. Right. No, not their dad's favorite restaurant. <laughs> that might be a little bit of a setup for failure. <laughs> Well, Kitty, thank you so much. I know I threw a lot of really <laughs> multi-layered and complex questions your way, and I'm so grateful for you sharing your 18-plus years of wisdom and knowledge and, and just ability to, as you keep saying, like, take a step back. Let's look at the bigger picture here. So I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was It was fun. And listeners out there, if you're having questions about how to connect with a counselor or a therapist or somebody who can help you navigating some of these big situations, please reach out to us at help at Dougie.org. We'd be happy to try to find um, some resources in your community. Um, anything you'd add to that, Kitty? Always contact your insurance company um, and they can help you find therapists or if you're um, employed somewhere that that has a human resources department. Often they have employee assistance programs that can help you find counselors for your for yourself or your children if that's needed. And oftentimes, if if you aren't currently insured or you're not employed, then you know reaching out to your county's mental health program. Oftentimes they can connect you with services as well. 
And for anyone out there who is listening to our podcast for the first time, welcome. And you can find all our past episodes at our website, dougy.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, any other podcast platform you're using. And many of our topics come from you, the listeners. So if you have an idea of something you'd like to hear us talk about or someone you think would be a great guest, reach out to us again at that help at Dougie.org email. And thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. 